0: Mark chapter 8, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. We come this morning to a very, very important text, not that any text is not important, but this is determinative. This is watershed. This is a text that really determines the trajectory of all texts after it, and is the fulfillment of all texts before it let me read it for us and then we'll go back and walk through it together. Mark chapter eight, beginning in verse twenty-seven. Mark eight, twenty-seven. Jesus went out, literally he went north from the Capernaum area. Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way He questioned his disciples, saying to them, Who do people say that I am? They told him, saying, Well, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, but others, one of the prophets. And he continued by questioning them. But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. And he warned them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again and he was stating the matter plainly and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him but turning around and seeing his disciples he rebuked Peter and said Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests but on man's. There are 31,102 verses in the Bible, 23,145 in the Old Testament, 7,957 verses in the New. And among these verses are some of the most famous phrases in human language and some of the most famous stories in human history. Almost everyone knows of Adam and Eve and the serpent, of Noah and his ark, Moses and the parting of the Red Sea, Samson and Delilah, David and Goliath, the Christmas story. Jesus walking on water. Jesus feeding 5,000 plus with a boy's lunch. And of course, as we celebrated last week, Christ's death and resurrection. And who can forget these verses that almost all the world is familiar with? John three sixteen For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Psalm 23, One, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want or lack. Joshua 1, 9, be strong and be courageous. Well, as we come to this passage before us this morning in Mark 8, begin unpacking this paragraph in Mark's gospel, I'm convinced that we come to one of the most profound events and one of the most profound verses in the 31,000 plus in God's holy word. Here, we have the definitive pronouncement of God's inerrant word about God's incarnate word. Specifically, we hear verbatim, explicitly, that Jesus of Nazareth is the promised Messiah. The Meshua, the Anointed One, the Christ. This, friends, is, in my humble estimation, the central confessional statement of the entire Scriptures, the central confession of the whole Bible. It shows that Jesus Christ is, listen, the integrating centrality of all of God's word. All the Old Testament works toward Jesus. All the New Testament explains Jesus. And as he is the integrating centrality of God's word, this calls us to consider that he ought to be the integrating centrality of our lives. It's the high point of Mark's gospel so far. And I would estimate it's the high point of the gospel's narratives all four put together. And certainly the high point of the disciples' training. But it's at the same time followed by the lowest point of the disciples' confessional experience. All that Jesus has done, all that he has taught, every miracle he has accomplished has led to a one question test, a one question exam with his men. It's a pass fail exam. And as expected, the disciple with the foot shaped mouth is the one who talks, Peter himself. As we listen to this, this, this narrative unfold, remember that likely Mark's source for all of his, his gospel data, his historical data, was Peter himself. I find it very interesting that Peter does not try to polish his reputation in this, this narrative. He tells it exactly how it happened. He tells it exactly how it was. With Peter's great declaration that Jesus is the Christ... Mark now brings us to the highest point of the development of the disciples' understanding of this man from Nazarene who, Nazareth who had called them to follow him. And as I said, at, at the same time, simultaneously, we hear the worst possible confession they could have ever made through Peter. And this made to the Lord himself. Now up to this point... In the Gospel of Mark, as in our study, we've witnessed Jesus engage both Jews and Gentiles. We've noted very carefully when he is ministering in Jewish contexts, especially around the uh, Bethsaida and Capernaum area, and when he's gone down to the Garrison area and over by uh, Caesarea, uh, Mamertine by the sea in Gentile area, and he has been an equal opportunity Messiah. He has not only limited, not limited himself to the Jews. He has demonstrated the great commission to go into all the world and proclaim the good news. We would expect, though, that the Jews would have graciously and gratefully received their long-expected Messiah. However, instead, the overwhelming response from the Jews led by the scribes and the Pharisees and the delegation sent up from Jerusalem has been misunderstanding and even opposition. So much so that a plot has now been hatched to murder Jesus. Day by day, he is dogged, harassed, debated, resisted, and combated by those who would like to see him put in his place in their minds and out of the rightful place that God wants him to occupy in ours. Oh, the people, they loved his miracles. They were intrigued by his teaching, though not changed. There have been a few responses by faith. This little band of followers followed Jesus for sure. But I find it interesting that Mark highlights the people who responded to Jesus in faith were not the Jews who should have. An unclean woman in chapter 5. A Syrophoenician woman. A Gentile in chapter 7. And to a Gentile deaf mute in chapter 7 as well. Mark has also stressed a really interesting phenomenon in our eight chapters of study. As the gospel writer, Mark himself, declares that Jesus is the Son of God in chapter one, verse one. We we read that right off the the bat. Jesus the Son of God. God himself announced at Jesus' baptism that Jesus was his son. But consider this. Up to this point in Mark, think about this. Let this marinate on your mind for a moment. There has been more insight about Jesus' identity from demons than from the Jews. Chapter 1, verse 25. Chapter 3, verse 11. Chapter 5, verse 7. Remember the demon-possessed man in the synagogue? Chapter 1 verse 24 What business do we have with each other Jesus of Nazareth have you come to destroy us for I know who you are the demon says the holy one the chosen one the messiah the christ I know who you are Mark chapter 3 verse 11 Whenever the unclean spirits saw Jesus they would fall down before him and shout you are the son of god And then that famous statement we spent some time on, the Gerasene demoniac, Mark 5, 7, shouting with a loud voice after he was delivered from this multitude of demons, said, what business do we have with each other, Jesus, son of the most high God? Mark, the narrator, has affirmed the true identity of Jesus. The demons have made the same affirmation and God the Father has done that as well. And now, for the first time, for the very first time, from human lips, the first human explicitly declares that Jesus is the Christ, is the Messiah. For the last two and a half years, Jesus' followers have been given clue after clue after clue about Jesus' true identity and what he did and how he taught and the authority he exercised. But so far... It's only been affirmed by supernatural beings. God, Mark, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for us and and demons. But this passage, Mark escorts you and me by reading this passage. He escorts us to sit in the front row to see and to hear the greatest of all insights and the answer to the most important question ever asked. Let's break this passage down it's it's one big narrative with three parts a three-part scene about the greatest of all insights a three-part scene about the greatest of all insights we open up in verses 27 to 30 with an epic confession an epic confession now full disclosure i have three uh, grown sons we are uh, always talking, or I shouldn't say that. I'm always listening to the way my sons talk and I learn how to talk from them. I feel like I taught them how to talk when they were younger and they're teaching me how to talk as I get older. And I've learned that, that the word of this generation, one of them is epic. That's an epic wave in Hawaii. That's an epic ice cream cone. That is an epic, and you fill in the blank. This really is epic, unmatched, one of a kind. This is truly, not exaggerating, an epic confession. Verse 27, Jesus went out, that's from the Capernaum Bethsaida area. He goes about 20 miles north with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Now, it is interesting to me in looking at ancient geography or biblical geography and how people traveled during that time that a 20 mile walk during the day was not a big deal in one day for these men just to walk let's go 20 miles north it's convicting so they go about 20 miles north to the villages of Caesarea Philippi if you were to go there today it's on the way straight north toward Syria and on the way, he questioned his disciples. Literally, he, he quizzed them. He used an interrogative. It was, a, it was dialogue, question and answer. He was now the questioner. They were on the spot. And we find out what he was asking them. He wanted to know, who do people say that I am? It's a very interesting question. He didn't say, what do they think about me? Do they like my miracles? Have they heard my teaching? Were they in the synagogue a few, a few Saturdays ago when I, when I gave that great illustration from Ezekiel? He doesn't ask that. He asks a, a question of, important word, ontology. Who he is, his very nature. Who, who do people say that I am? Jesus assumes, by the way, that these men have been approached by people to discuss the identity of their master. And if you and I had been in that day and we couldn't get to Jesus, I promise you, we would have cornered one of these 12 as well. It's not hard to imagine every time the disciples went to the market, every time they walked back to their home, every time they were walking along the street or found in anywhere open, they were stopped and asked questions about this man from Nazareth. Peppered with questions, cornered with questions, stopped always with questions. Jesus knew this. He had probably seen this. I'm sure on the outskirts of the crowds that he had gathered, he could see conversations happening with the disciples, with people asking questions, making statements, making assessments, making guesses about Jesus' identity. Who is this man? The shift in the question, though, is not what can Jesus do, what does Jesus teach? But as I said, it's ontological. Who is he? Who is this man? They had an answer. They had had these conversations. Jesus obviously knew that. And he's extracting it out of them. This is a setup question, by the way. He's going to work from the macro to the micro, from the broad to the narrow. Who does everyone say? And then he's going to tighten the screws and say, and who do you say? So let's start with the broader. They told him, verse... 28, saying. And and the the, the Greek for saying here means they they had lots of things to say. They were were on and on. This was a long conversation. It was a 20 mile walk. Here's their answer. Well, some say that you are John the Baptist. An interesting guess since Jesus and John the Baptist had stood together many times. Others say, nope, you're Elijah. And still others say, "One of the prophets? Now, I think there are probably other guesses. This is a summary that the, the disciples were, were giving the Lord of the popular opinions about Jesus. So let's, let's break it down for a minute. Let's look first at John the Baptist. Some say you're John the Baptist. This is the rumor mill. Propagated by Herod Antipas. We'll go back and see that in a moment. Back in chapter 8, excuse me, chapter 6 that we studied, Herod feared that his misjustice of John had returned to haunt him. And so he thought that the spirit of John had been, been, been reconstituted in this Galilean teacher and that he was in trouble. Others say, no, 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 he's Elijah. Why Elijah? Well, the Jews have always been intrigued from then to this day phenomenally intrigued by Elijah. Why? Because he didn't die. Remember? Second Kings 2 Kings 2.11. He was taken to heaven in a chariot of fire. So the idea was in inner, the intertestamental period, we have people seeing prophets and they're wondering, well, Elijah didn't die. Maybe Maybe, that's it. maybe he came back. He's come back to Israel. And then the last uh, summary is, oh, you're one of the prophets. Moses had prophesied that God would, Deuteronomy 18, raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. And maybe this was the prophet that Moses had predicted. Look back just for a moment at chapter six. This is an interesting summary Because when we were looking at the murder of John the Baptist, we studied this phrase, and I I, I encourage you then that we would come back to it. Mark chapter 6, verse 14. Mark is remembering, giving a retrospect on the death of John the Baptist. Mark 6.14 And King Herod heard of it for his name had become well known this is Jesus and the people were saying John the Baptist has risen from the dead which would have freaked him out having murdered him unjustly and that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him John the Baptist came back from the dead Verse 15. Others were saying, no, 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 no. He's Elijah. Elijah never died. He's probably going to come back. So he came back. And this is who this man from Nazareth is. And others were saying, nope, he's a prophet. Like one of the prophets of old. This is not a reincarnated prophet. This is one in line with the Old Testament prophets. This is just the latest, after 400 years of silence, the latest prophet that God has sent. The same three Attributions about Jesus are what the disciples summarize as the rumor mill, this at the request of the Lord. Verse 29. He was in the process of continuing to, the verb indicates, continuing to question them. And the sum of his Question, we're back in 829, is this. But, an adversive? Hang, hang on, that's the rumor mill, that's the crowds, but who do you, who do you say that I am? No more important question has ever been uttered on this planet than that one. Who do you say Jesus is? And they better have an answer. Remember, they've been given clue after clue after clue. They've watched him do miracles. They've watched him feed thousands and thousands. They've, they've watched him raise the dead. They've heard him teach. They've seen his authority. They've heard him rebuke the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees and the Jewish elders. You put all of that in their spiritual calculus X plus Y plus A plus B plus C. Whatever math you can put in there. And Jesus was asking for the equal sign. All that spiritual observation equals what? Who do you say that I am? There doesn't seem to be a long lag here. It's almost as if Peter were, 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 were waiting, biting the bit, waiting to say this. Peter answered and said, you are The Christ. Matthew adds that Jesus told Peter that this recognition did not come from himself. Mark just leaves that as a statement. Matthew says that Jesus actually gave him a footnote. Said you didn't get this from your own intellect. From your own observation. God opened your eyes. This came directly from God the father to reveal this to you. That's why you recognize who I am. This recognition is always a divine gift then and now for anyone. Listen, this is so encouraging. If you know who Jesus is and you believe who Jesus is, you did not do that by your own intellect, intuition, and deduction. Only God can reveal that to the heart. You're the Christ. You are the Christ. Just quick tour. Quick tour. Don't try to turn. Matthew 1.1. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the Messiah. Messiah and Christ and anointed one and chosen one and holy one are all synonyms. Matthew 1.18, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. Mark 1.1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. We say this, we read this so often, we forget that it has significant meaning. John 1, 17, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus the Christ. Acts 3, 6, Peter said, I do not possess silver or gold, but what I do have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene walk. Romans three twenty four. being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption of, which is in Christ Jesus. Often Paul flips that, Christ Jesus. And then one of the most startling verses to me uh, as someone who likes English grammar, thank you Mrs. Copeland in the 10th grade who made English grammar fun. Uh, I I think the only reason I, I passed Greek and Hebrew and Latin was because of Mrs. Copeland. She loved English grammar and taught us to Treat it like a puzzle to be solved. In John 17, 3, you find something highly unusual in the grammar. Even more unusual in the narrative. You know, it's the high priestly prayer and Jesus is praying. He's down outside the garden of, of Gethsemane about to take the three in deeper to pray. And he has his men there. Listen to this. He says, And this is eternal life, John 17, three. Think about this. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and this is how he prays, and that they may know Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. My suspicion is you've never prayed like that in third person. So imagine I, I come up this morning, we're getting ready for the service and I say, let's pray. And my prayer sounds like this. Lord, we pray for our worship service and Rick Holland, the preacher. What do you think? That's odd. You don't pray about yourself in the third person. Jesus does. Why? Why would he pray about himself in the third person? Because this is the place, the definitive place, the only place where he does this, where he actually personally proclaims that he is indeed The Christ. He calls himself Jesus Christ. Odd grammar often leads to wonderful theology. So Jesus is being interrogated day in and day out by the the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. Ultimately that will climax and they're, they're quizzing him just before the crucifixion. And in Matthew 26, they ask him, Tell us, Jesus, tell us if you are the Christ. His answer, You have said it yourself. If he were ever going to deny that he was the Christ, no, that's not me. You got the wrong guy. He could have and would have then. And he said, It's as you said. accused him in verse 65 of that same chapter of blasphemy for calling himself the Christ Luke records that on one occasion Jesus cast out demons out of individuals and the demons cried out and said you are the Christ the son of God the idea of a coming Messiah or Christ was richly embedded in the older testament richly embedded One day the chosen one of God would come to save the world from their sins. One day a final sacrifice would come and end all sacrifices. Remember the Garden of Eden? Adam and Eve were told that a seed of the woman, a descendant, would come and one day destroy Satan and sin. We call that the first, the proto-evangelium. A big way of saying the first iteration of the gospel in Genesis 3.15. Psalm 16 Psalm 22, Psalm 45, Psalm 110, Daniel 9, all describe the coming of the Messiah. Remember Jesus himself. In a synagogue in Nazareth, comes, reads the scripture for that day, just happened to be on that day and that text, from the book of Isaiah. And says, and when he had opened the book, Jesus, he found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. That's messianic language. To proclaim liberty to the captives, recover the sight of the blind, set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. He closes the book and he says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing." Luke 4, 17 to 21. He points to Isaiah 61, the prophecy of the coming Messiah, and says, I am he. This is epic. Who is Jesus? The long expected Messiah. That's who Jesus is. Now, you would expect for Jesus to say, you got it. Here's your marching orders. You've figured it out, you've solved the riddle, you know the puzzle, now go tell everybody. Look at what verse 30 says. And he warned them, this is a stern word, a heavy word. He pierced them, he warned them to tell no one about him. In other words, don't tell anyone I'm the Christ. Does that not seem a little counterintuitive? If they come to this most epic confession, this most epic observation of Jesus, and they get it, they finally understand it, wouldn't you expect that he would say, great, go tell everyone. And he says, don't tell anybody. Do not tell anyone. We've looked at this in the last few weeks. Look over at Mark 9, 9. We know why. After the transfiguration... Mark 9, 9, they were coming down from the mountain. He gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen. They just saw the glory of God in a man from Nazareth. He peels back his flesh. He shows them light that blinds them. They see three people and are supposed to be dead. Two people are supposed to be dead along with the living Savior, they they see this light, they're they're, they're blinded. And Jesus says, shh, don't tell tell anybody, don't tell anybody. Why? Last phrase. Until, it means you can tell people when. Later, until the Son of Man rose from the dead. Why? Because Jesus' words, Jesus' miracles, Jesus' healings, Jesus' insights were incomplete without the gospel message of his death and burial and resurrection for sin. How do we know that? Now we come to the second part of this scene about the greatest of all insights. Number two, because Jesus tells them a foreboding prophecy. A foreboding prophecy. You can almost hear the air leave the room or the road on the trail up to Caesarea Philippi. So Jesus, Peter makes this confession. Matthew gives some extra uh, insights. He says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Flesh and blood didn't tell you this, Jesus says, but my father who's in heaven... Verse 31, Mark picks it up and says, from that point, after he, here's the confession, warns them not to tell anybody. And he began to teach them, this is on the 20 mile walk, that the son of man, that's Jesus, must suffer many things. And be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. And this must have stuck out to them above anything Jesus has said in their two and a half years of knowing him. And be killed. If that wasn't shocking enough, and after three days rise again... This Greek word for begin. He began to teach them. Indicates the this was the initiation. This was the first time on this road from uh, Bethsaida, Capernaum area going north. This was the first time he just said, "It's been two and a half years." He said, "You've got so much, but you need the final piece of the puzzle." Here's what's going to happen. He's taught his disciples for over two years. They've been putting the pieces of the puzzle together, but this was the last piece that they desperately needed and they did not get it. Jesus changes their script. It was not what they expected. Look ahead. It's hard not to do this. Look ahead to Mark chapter 10. We'll spend a whole sermon on this. Mark chapter 10 verse 32. He, he keeps telling them this when you put all the synoptics together. This is a recurring thing. He's teaching them. Verse 32, Mark chapter 10, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. They had come down the the Jordan Valley, down to Jericho, were going to climb the 20 to 30 miles up toward Jerusalem. He was walking on ahead of them. They were amazed. And those who followed were fearful. They knew. Trouble awaited him from that group that had sent the delegation to dog him up in Galilee. And again, He took the 12 aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him. Is that clear? Saying, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. The son of man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him and put him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. Condemn him to death and and hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, spit on him, scourge him, kill him. Three days he will rise again. verse 35 James and John two sons of Zebedee came up saying no just just be in this scene for a moment men we're going up the hill i'm going to be condemned wrongly accused wrongly tried be executed buried and rise from the dead you just heard that okay Got that? You just heard that. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, well, what do you want me to do? Well, grant that we may sit on your right and on your left in your glory. They had every confidence he was going up the hill to Jerusalem, establishing the kingdom. He was going to be the king and they wanted to have good seats. Not the typical response to, I'm going to go up here and die. They didn't get it. We'll come back and look at that more explicitly in just a few weeks. The lesson about the cross, the lesson about paying the price of redemption for sin was not understood, neither was it embraced by these men until after the resurrection, and they should have. Remember in Isaiah chapter 10, excuse me, chapter 53 verse 10, the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting an end to grief. He would render, listen, he would render Himself as a guilt offering. Guilt offerings were always by blood and they were never accomplished by an animal bleeding and then going on to his afternoon in the pen. It was death. He was. Explicit, the Holy Spirit was explicit through Isaiah that the great Messiah, the anointed one, would be, not offer, would be the great sin guilt offering. This shouldn't have been a surprise. And by the way, a little practical footnote before we're too hard on them about not remembering everything they should have known from the Old Testament, do you? Do we? How's our memory? Jesus taught them there would be no Christ without a cross, no death without resurrection. Later, Peter would say, 1 Peter 3, 18, Christ died once for sins, once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. He understood it fully later, having been put to death in the flesh made alive in the spirit. This great theological insight by Peter though would indeed come much later because for now, (laughs) Peter would have none of it. Which brings us to the third part in this three-part series, scene rather, about the greatest of all insights. Epic confession, he was right. Foreboding prophecy, death, burial, resurrection, payment for sins is coming. Number three, The third scene is a misguided response. Misguided. I chose that word very careful. Misguided means you are guided by someone wrongly. Misguided. Verse 32. And he was stating the matter plainly. Now, I don't like digging too much into the original languages, but this is a place we need to pull over and do a little Greek study, okay? Okay? Let me read you the definition of that word stating it plainly from my, my best Greek dictionary, lexicon. This is what it says. To state plainly means, quote, to use the, a use of speech that conceals nothing and passes over nothing is outspoken, frank, in utter clarity and plainness. So Jesus, remember this the verb is he was explaining, he went on and on. Twenty miles. It's a lot of time. He explained it not once, multiple, multiple times. He was explaining it forcefully, passing over nothing. Unmistakable, passionate, perspicuous or clear. And Peter, <laughs> verse 32, took him aside. And began to rebuke him. Epitamao. To get in his kitchen. To warn him. Now, this is not hard to imagine. They are walking on the road. Remember, this whole scene is is they're traveling on the road up to Caesarea Philippi. He's having this conversation back and forth. You can see the disciples kind of jockeying positions as they're getting around him. He's saying this thing. At some point, probably stopping and explaining with further detail. At this point, Peter takes Jesus probably off of the road. Jesus, come here, come here. Maybe his arm around his shoulder in respect, he takes him aside, gets him by himself, not too far away that the disciples couldn't hear it, though. We'll find that out in a moment. And he, epitemao, rebuke, strong rebuke. He corrects him. Peter makes an attempt to correct Jesus. It must have been, okay, I just said you're the Christ. And Matthew says, you just told me on that confession, you're going build, to build your entire church. You may know that I have all my one awards on my banner right now. I, I'm, I'm pretty well done. I, I'm, I've earned credibility. I have confessional street cred. So, You've been doing really good at healing and miracles and teaching and authority. You've been really good about uh, being the Christ. But death, mistreatment, we're also with you. No, he rebuked him. He said, you will not die. Now, before you jump too much on Peter, Give him a little grace. I mean, there is something noble about this, isn't there? No, they're not going to kill the Christ. Almost like when he takes a swing at the at the head, hits an ear. I mean, you, you appreciate his impulsiveness. He was just dead wrong. Peter's just received a public proclamation, an affirmation from Jesus. He's brimming with confidence and self-esteem. You can hardly blame him. How could the Christ enter into the city of Jerusalem, the holy city, the place where the Christ was to rule and reign and be killed? So Peter takes the Lord aside, rebukes him, expresses his strong disapproval. But, verse 33, turning around and seeing his disciples, same Greek word, he epitamaoed Peter. He rebukes him. And it, the idea is he's off the road. He's been alone with Peter. This conversation happens and he turns back and he says, this answer needs to be heard by all. What answer? Oh my goodness. Get behind me. Satan. Not Peter. Not Cephas. Satan. Let's reflect back. Matthew's account, we discover that Peter's confession was literally being a mouthpiece for God the Father. Jesus says in Matthew 16, 17, Blessed are you Simon Barjona because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you but my father also who is in heaven. You were speaking for God but now he's the mouthpiece for the devil. I wish, uh, I don't wish this on you. So many commentators I read this week were, were, were dealing with this. Well, was Peter was Peter demon possessed? Was he Satan possessed? That's not the point at all. It's not the point at all. How do we know that was, when he was speaking to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, was he saying, you have now been overrun and possessed by the devil? No, not at all. How do we know he wasn't? Next phrase. Because you're not thinking God's thoughts. This is, um, and again, I apologize for, for us drowning a little bit in Greek, but this is a really interesting construction. He says, you are not uttering, speaking, thinking the, literally, the of God things. The of God, the things. Or the things of God. Your mind is not being controlled by God. You are not setting your mind on the of God things, the God perspective, the God plan, but instead on man's. Now, he didn't say you're setting your mind not on God's, but Satan's, right? If he were possessed by Satan, we would expect him to say something like that. But on man's, what he's saying is very simple. There are only two categories when it comes to assessing Jesus. God's perspective and Satan's. And all of man's default mistakes about Jesus are satanically fueled. And all of man's affirmation that Jesus is the Christ is divinely controlled, motivated by the the Father himself. Any opposition of the cross is opposition authored by Satan himself. You don't have to be possessed to have satanic thoughts. This was the great satanic ploy. Maybe, maybe we could, we could keep this final sacrifice for sin from happening. Maybe we could talk Jesus out of this. And I think that the enemy used Peter's natural affections for his friend Jesus to go against the divine plan and predetermined foreknowledge of God that this was the only way Isaiah 53 was going to happen. Three scenes that compel us to put ourselves in this narrative. Here's some questions, three questions you must answer based on this text. Three questions you must answer based upon this text. Question number one, who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? And for us in this century with a closed canon and a complete Bible. It's not enough for us to say Jesus is the Christ and the Savior and the Messiah. We have to say he's mine. I believe. My faith is in him. Listen, friends, this is the most, if you've heard nothing today, just give me a few seconds. This is the most determinative question in your life. The answer to this question literally lands you in heaven with God forever or in hell being disciplined and punished by God forever. How you answer it determines your eternal destiny. Who do you say Jesus is? If you read this text, the answer is he is the Christ. He is the annoying one. He did die for Sins, the sins of those who would believe. He did literally die, was put into a grave, three days later rose from the dead and offers, as Peter said, offers us access to God. He died that he would bring us to God, having put death to death. He made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians five, twenty-one says, do you believe that? Can I be as clear as I know how? The wages of sin is death. If you die without faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will die in your sins. You will pay for those sins. The only payment that would ever be appropriate, which is forever with no appeal and no stop in hell being punished for rejecting his son. And because you've heard Jesus today affirm this this statement, you are even more accountable. But in an amazing condescension, he offers us escape from his wrath, escape from ourselves, escape from the, the troubles of this world, if not in this life and the next, and says you can be free from it all by believing, putting your faith in me. What kind of fool would say no to that? Do you, who do you say Jesus is? Second question. Do you understand the necessity and meaning of his death? This is from the three scenes. The second is about his death. Do you understand the necessity and meaning of his death? Isaiah was very clear in Isaiah 53. He would be the guilt offering. He wouldn't provide it. He wouldn't grab the lamb. He wouldn't get the goat. He wouldn't get the, 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 the Holy heifer or cow that would be uh, uh, sacrificed for the whole nation he would be the guilt offering and they missed it the Old Testament preloads this in our understanding the New Testament unloads it in our understanding Jesus foretold it and the uh, epistles after this point will explain it the letters in the New Testament Do you understand the necessity and meaning of his death? That's why he said, Do this to remember me, so that we would never drift far from his sacrifice. And thirdly, do you, this is so important, do you have any resistance to the gospel message? Do you have any, any resistance to the gospel message? We'll find out in the next passage next week that Jesus says the cost of discipleship is high. Your resistance might not be intellectual or spiritual or a stiff arm to the belief, but your resistance may be, I want Jesus plus. I want Jesus and I I don't wanna deal with this idol or this sin in my life. I want Jesus to be here with me to have my sin and my idols, but also Jesus. Jesus doesn't share space with idols of the heart. Do you have any resistance to the gospel? Peter's temptation was to think there was another way of salvation other than the death of God the Son. Do we really believe that it is completely tetelestai, it is finished. It is finished. He's done it for us.